8 this morning. And we are looking at verses 1 through 13. Jesus' healing power is what I've entitled the message. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we thank you for your word now. And uh, speak to our hearts. May we uh, be receptive to your truth, what you're wanting to uh, bring across in the text. Help me to teach it accurately and clearly. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, overview of uh, Matthew. Whoops. We really got there in a hurry, didn't we? Uh, theme is Christ the King. And we have worked our way down to hear the uh, chapters 8 through 10, the power of the King proving his prophetical right to the throne by fulfilling prophecy. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus presented himself as the Messiah, as uh, seen in the authority of his teaching. This authority theme now continues on into chapters 8 through 10 as seen in Christ's performance of various miracles. Now, these were not just miracles done in a vacuum. You say, well, that's kind of interesting. He's doing miracles over there. Uh, No, they were really kingdom-type miracles in keeping with the Old Testament prophetic scriptures that would be indicative of the coming king. So thus, these miracles provided proof that indeed Jesus was the promised king presenting the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. Well, Jesus did miracles of a kind that no one else had ever done before. And in sheer volume that had never been done before. He performed miracles uh, showing his authority over disease, over nature, over demons, and over death. In addition, we see his authority to forgive sins. Who can do that, by the way? If you find a holy priest, he can do it for you. Just one problem, there isn't any of those on earth, right? There is one in heaven, our great high priest. But uh, his authority to forgive sins, what's that tell us about Jesus? Well, if you're consistent with scripture, you know what it says about his person. He's God, right? Jesus truly was an unparalleled miracle worker, indicative of the king presenting the kingdom. Now, Matthew writes topically, not necessarily chronologically. When we look at the the Gospels, and it's kind of like Matthew's got a little different arrangement than Luke or than Mark. Uh, So he writes topically. He's presenting a theme-based stream here. And Matthew writes to illustrate a point. In Matthew 8 and 9, we have 10 selective miracles presented which function as messianic credentials. But note this about Christ. Maybe you've not thought about this before. Uh, The miracles that he did were not only powerful, and they were that, but they were good and beneficial. In contrast to the miraculous plagues done through the hand of Moses, Christ's miracles were blessing miracles in keeping with kingdom reality. We get into the kingdom, what's the context? Judgment falling all over the place? That's behind us once we get into the kingdom, folks. In the kingdom, the singular emphasis on miracles relates to the blessing aspect of God's power. And this is what Christ put on display 
Namely, a display of kingdom blessing miracles. John 1.17 says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In John 3.17 it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And again, in John 12, 47, Christ said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. First coming on a saving mission, presenting the kingdom, kingdom blessings. They rejected. He went to the cross. We, we know the story. So Christ's first coming was not for judgment, but rather to present himself as the king, offering the kingdom on the condition of repentance. Notice the precise fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures on this note. In Isaiah chapter 61, we read there, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a messianic prophecy. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening a prison to the, those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I inserted here, gap, gap, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's coming too. But there's a gap between that and what was stated previously. And with that background, note what happened. Jesus, early in his ministry, went back to his hometown of Nazareth. We read there, so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there. He stopped mid-sentence. What we have in our Bible is noted as Isaiah 61.2. Then he closed the book, closed it. That's all the further he was going at this point. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So note there, uh, he went this far, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. Now is the accepted time. Now is the time to respond. It's not like judgment day has fallen. No, no, no. Grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. It's a day of grace. And so uh, notice we back up here. If I can back up to that previous slide. Thank you. Uh, so here, he went this far. Stopped right mid-sentence. It's not time for the time of vengeance. Not the day of vengeance. Christ wasn't presenting that. And his miracles were in keeping with this, this grace message. So the reason Christ did not read in the day of vengeance of our God is because he did not come for judgment at his first coming. That will be fulfilled, yes it will be, in relationship to his second coming. The first coming was all about grace and truth. Thus the presentation of the kingdom miracles were all positive in nature. There were no miracles of judgment. And this fits perfectly with the kingdom blessing theme being presented. Matthew 8, we pick it up, verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So the location uh, where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount is thought to have not been far from Capernaum. 
Uh, here we go, the little town of Capernaum over here, Mount of Beatitudes, we think somewhere in the vicinity, not far from Capernaum. And of course, just by way of reference, next slide here, we are uh, up here, way up north. Now keep this in mind, Jerusalem's way down south here. This bulk of Jesus' ministry is taking place up here uh, in the uh, area of Capernaum. And uh, Mount of Olives was, was quite close there, evidently. So uh, he had come down from where he had given the Sermon on the Mount, and great crowds followed him. And verse 2 continues, And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now in this context, a leper comes. And note it says, And behold, yeah, behold indeed, you have to realize this was unthinkable. Lepers were supposed to be quarantined, you understand. And if anyone approached, they were to cry out, Unclean! Unclean! Watch out! Get back! Stay away from me! No wonder, behold, a leper came. In Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall be unclean. All the days he has a sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean. And he shall dwell, you ready for this? Alone. Alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, presumably, as this leper approached Jesus, the crowds practiced social distancing. <laughs> so as to ensure that they would not make any contact with him. You understand, we cannot probably, uh, properly appreciate this. Leprosy was a terrible life-wrecking disease for which there was no cure. <laughs> It was terrible in terms of physical consequences as well as social consequences. No one would dare touch a leper. Because it made you ceremonially unclean. Not to mention that it was extremely highly contagious. Indeed, it was thought to be a sign of God's judgment on a person. To be a leper was to be an untouchable, an outcast. If you think COVID was bad, try leprosy in Bible times. You talk about quarantine, this was it. Leprosy began with pain, but then extremities such as fingers and toes would become numb and eventually fall off, characteristically. Lepers often emitted an unpleasant odor. Leprosy also affected, generally, the voice box as time went along. So the person had a raspy, hoarse-sounding voice. So they looked, smelled, and sounded pitiful. You really don't want this kind of person interrupting your service. Unless, of course, you're Jesus. Jesus didn't say, everybody get back! John MacArthur writes, Among the 61 defilements of ancient Judaism, leprosy was second only to a dead body in seriousness. The Talmud, that's a collection of Jewish writings, teachings, forbade a Jew from coming closer than six feet to a leper. And if the wind was blowing, the limit was 150 feet. I'm assuming it was a wind still day here. 
Behold, this leper came worshiping Jesus and calling him Lord. Now, it is true that the word worship can simply mean bow down. And Lord can, in some contexts, simply mean polite address in the sense of sir. However, the context, I believe, argues for more than this. This leper, you see, believed that Jesus had the power to cleanse him, which is to say heal him. And in his mind, he was not merely a respectable sir. He was Lord who had the authority to cure his ailment. Now, again, you have to realize how significant that is. To approach Jesus for full healing indicated he thought Jesus was someone very special and unique. You see, in the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, there is record of only three people as ever having been healed of leprosy. And in each case, it was a direct act of God. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses' hand became leprous and then instantly was healed. In Numbers 12, Miriam became leprous, leprous, and then God healed her. And in 2 Kings 5, Naaman the Syrian leper was healed. That is the whole of it. That's the whole of healing of leprosy in the Old Testament. Very, very rare. And when it happened, it was a direct act of God that healing took place. Holman uh, Christian Study Bible says, By kneeling before Jesus and addressing him as Lord, Greek kurios, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, the man recognized Jesus as far more than just a man. His confidence in Jesus' ability to heal his condition hints that his act of worship involved full recognition of Jesus' deity. I think, I think we do kind of have a hint uh, in that direction. Notice he said to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. He didn't presume to know if Jesus would or would not heal him. However, he did believe that Christ had the power to do so. But yielded to Christ's prerogative on whether or not he would. This is a great lesson, by the way, on faith. A great lesson on faith. You see, so many false teachers today say, if you just believe it strong enough, it will happen. They say, name it, brother, and claim it. This leper didn't do that. This leper didn't do that. He named it, but he didn't claim it. He left it in the realm of possibility, not certainty. And say, Lord, I believe you're Lord, and I'm here to claim my miracle today. No, didn't do that. He left it up to Jesus, which is the right thing to do. Since, after all, if you call him Lord, maybe you want to leave it with him, since he's Lord. Instead of trying to say, I'm going to manipulate you, Lord, to do what I want you to do. Now, who's Lord? Me or you? Faith believes in the Lord's ability, but does not presume to say how God will act in any given situation. This is God's domain. Daniel, I love these verses from Daniel. Daniel's three friends said uh, to the king, uh, you know, hey, we're not going to bow down to your golden image. said, yeah, that front, you're going in the furnace. And, and here's what they said. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, 
But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Faith has confidence in God's ability, but leaves room for the but if not. You say, well, those guys, they just lacked a little faith. Well, I don't know why God preserved them in the, in the furnace. I mean, with this lack of faith by, by saying, you know, but if not. God's ways are not our ways. Uh, he does not always work like we might want him to, according to our thinking. God honoring faith trusts in God's power, but it does not know the outcome of how God might work in any given situation. Faith recognizes dependence upon God, but it also realizes how God deals with us is according to his prerogative. Thus, faith is humble before God and doesn't try to tell him what to do, which is really flat-out blasphemous and arrogant. Costi Hinn, the converted nephew of Benny Hinn, has written a book titled God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And in the book, he writes this. By an early age, as part of the Hinn family, I viewed Jesus Christ as our magic genie. Rub him right, and he'll give you whatever your heart desires. The prosperity gospel certainly denies the sovereignty of God to the extent that it demeans God to the position of a puppet and elevates the man to the position of a puppet master who makes confessional demands by faith. It does this by considering faith as a force and God is the one who must respond to our faith. Yeah. You know, we're the puppet master. We're kind of manipulating God to get what we want. Wow. You talk about heresy, blasphemous, false teaching. This is exactly what the leper did not do. He made no demands. He did not try to manipulate Jesus. Rather, he humbly recognized Jesus' sovereign authority as Lord. But then he yielded to his will. In effect, he made a humble plea that recognized Jesus' sovereign prerogative in the matter. The so-called faith healers could learn a lot from this leper. His example serves as a corrective to a lot of errant theology. Verse 3, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. We could almost put another behold here, I think. This is amazing. You see, the law of Moses forbade the touching of anything unclean, but Jesus was above the law. The law said that if you touched anything unclean, you would be made unclean, but not Jesus. When he touched the leper, instead of being made unclean, he made the leper clean. His cleanness overcame the uncleanness, which is something only God can do. This shows the supreme authority of Jesus over the worst of disease. And notice how Jesus took the initiative here. Putting out his hand and touching him. He could have just said the word, right? He didn't have to touch him. He just said, I, I, I'm not touching you, sir. Back up 150 feet. The, the wind is blowing, sir. <laughs> no, he, he, he could have just said the word, but he didn't here. Instead, he purposely reached out and touched this leper. That says something about the heart of Jesus. You know, this man had probably not been touched uh, purposely in years. You know what that does to people? 
COVID has not been good in a lot of ways. You, you just put people in isolation for too long a time. I mean, it's destructive, extremely so. This guy probably hadn't been purposely touching years, but Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And he touched him. Can you imagine the crowd seeing this? Shockingly, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. There was no long drawn out process, no request for money. Say, sir, please leave a, a nice offering there. I've done a lot for you today. No, no request for money, no circus show. Just a simple touch and comment, be cleansed and it was done. Footnote here. It's, it's just a historical footnote, but I do think it, it, you know, is significant. You see, the Jews believed there were four physical ailments that could only be corrected by God himself. It was thought that when God would send the Messiah, that he would perform four unique miracles that no other man could perform. And they are known as the four messianic miracles. Here's what they are. Cleansing a leper. Casting out a deaf and a dumb spirit, the healing of birth defects, raising the dead after three days. Now, if you're a Jew trained in this kind of thinking, what in the world is going on here? The Jews thought that leprosy was inflicted by God himself and that only God could remove it. And with the track record of the Old Testament, you can see why. It was only God that ever did remove it. Therefore, leprosy was called by the Jews the finger of God. God has touched that person in a, in a cursing kind of way. Well, this background shows all the more that this leper must have recognized Jesus as Lord God, or at least that the power of God was working through him in a very special way, such as God would work through the Messiah. Verse 4, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Isn't this an interesting command? Why did Jesus tell this man who had the greatest news now, the greatest news in his entire life, why did Jesus now tell him, don't tell anybody? <laughs> well, commentators grapple uh, with understanding the reason for this prohibition. For one thing, the multitudes around him had already seen it, Right? He says to him, uh, no, I don't want you to share your story. Well, here are some possible reasons the commentators give. Let me just quickly run through them. Number one, Jesus did not want messianic fever to just be about his healing ministry. Number two, the crowds were starting to grow out of control, which could actually become a hindrance to Christ's ministry. Number three, Jesus wanted the miracle officially certified in a formal way by the priest in keeping with the law before the leper told his story. And number four, to prevent premature notice from reaching the priest's second hand, which might negatively influence the priest. Well, probably the best explanation is the one given by Jesus right here in the text, even though we might not fully understand. Uh, Jesus said specifically, go your way, show your way to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So it seems the reason Jesus says to be quiet related to the testimony that he wanted him to have with the priests. It seems that Christ wanted this miracle to be a special unvarnished testimony to the priest at the temple. He evidently wanted it verified before them, before they got a whole lot of secondary information from all kinds of sources. 
Well, by the way, this would have involved quite a process. He's way up here in, in Capernaum area. Uh, the man would have had to travel all the way down to Jerusalem from up north there in Galilee. Uh, he would have had to carry out the detailed process of ceremonial cleansing ritual stated in Leviticus 13 and 14. By the way, there's 116 verses of scripture addressing that issue. This was quite a process. The process would take eight days. So a lot was involved here. But alas, according to Mark chapter 1 verse 45, the leper at this point didn't listen to the one he called Lord. Right? One thing about recognizing Jesus Lord, you can still be disobedient. And he was. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter. So Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. So it seems that in some ways, the leper spreading this story did hinder Christ's urban ministry. The crowds were so overwhelming, he couldn't function in that context anymore, so he had to go out to the deserted areas. Scripture, by the way, reveals no indication of punishment for the cleansed leper's disobedience, and presumably he eventually made his way to the temple, undoubtedly followed by quite an entourage. <laughs> I don't know. Verse 5. Turn the page. Verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Capernaum was the adopted hometown of Jesus and, and the base of his uh, ministry operations. Again, uh, we're talking up here. You know, this is uh, largely the area where uh, Christ's earthly ministry took place. Now, he made trips down to Jerusalem and so forth, too, and, and other places, even over here. But uh, largely in this northern region around Capernaum. I say this became his adopted hometown, uh, the, the base for his uh, ministry operations. Well, a centurion was a military leader who was in charge of uh, 100 soldiers, right? You can kind of see century, 100 years, centurion. You can see the connection there of 100. Uh, this man was a Roman. And somehow he knew about Jesus and sent, Jesus, uh, sent to Jesus saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Again, we note he addressed Jesus as Lord. And again, Lord, when used of Jesus, normally has the idea of, of master, authoritative master, and, and really in the sense of God master. We saw this in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Lord carries with it the idea of having the authority to determine who enters the kingdom and who does not. When used of the risen Lord, the, the word Lord always carries with it the idea of God master, always, invariably. The word servant is a word that can be understood as a young boy or a beloved servant, uh, which is the case here. And although Matthew makes it sound like the centurion came in person, Luke is clear that the centurion uh, was actually addressing Christ through intermediaries or, or representatives, uh, Jewish representatives uh, who spoke for him. And they spoke very positively for him, saying, you know, he's built for us this over here, etc., etc., but here's the point. Jesus is for everyone. The leper represented a societal outcast. Yes, he was Jewish, but an outcast nonetheless. The Roman centurion was a non-Jew, but high society and very respected. So we see Jesus ministering to the societal down and outer, 
as well as to the societal elite. Jesus is for everyone, no matter their societal status, whether Jew or Gentile, whether high or low. And Jesus said to him, so he's uh, addressing Jesus as Lord, and uh, he's, he's asking for some help with his servant. <clears throat> and verse 7 says, And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Here again, Jesus is breaking all the cultural norms, which Jesus tended to do. You see, Jewish law forbade Jews from having this kind of interaction or contact with Gentiles. However, Jesus, without hesitation, was willing to come. He didn't even say, well, I have to get with my committee back here. You know, my t- the 12. Uh, no. <clears throat> he says, I'll come and heal him. God's grace is extended to all, including Gentiles. No, too, there is no uncertainty with the Lord. He did not say, well, I- I- I'll come and, and I'll see what I can do. I- I'll do my best. No, he didn't say that. Rather, with strong affirmation, he said, I will come and heal him. There's no doubt about it. This is lordship authority being affirmed. And don't you love this about Jesus? I mean, he was willing to touch a leper. An absolute no-no. He was willing to come and openly associate with a Gentile. Another absolute no-no in Jewish culture. I love how Jesus was so unconventional. And often turned the cultural norms on their head. And I trust I've learned a lot about Jesus in this regard. I think we all come from a certain background and we have certain cultural norms and get a little legalistic sometimes even. Uh, I I know I've grown in grace through the years. Jesus was unconventional in many ways. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A whole new attitude towards these Gentiles. And that theme is developed through the book of uh, Matthew. Verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Again, we have the word Lord. Kyrios, Greek Kyrios, which as mentioned normally means master in addressing Christ. And here the centurion specifically connects it with uh, the idea of lordship. Lord, I'm not worthy. The centurion, in recognizing the lordship of Christ, recognizes his own unworthiness. This is humility. He says to Christ, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. This is a man of some stature. He's a centurion for crying out loud. High society, respected man. I'm not worthy that you should even come into my house. So in humility, he recognized his unworthiness. In view of Christ's surpassing greatness. He is saying something very great about Jesus. Infusing the idea of the word Lord with somebody that is far superior to him. At the same time he recognized Christ's authoritative power when he said, But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And then he gave this explanation of his reasoning. Verse 9. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You know what? I know what giving orders is all about. I'm a man with some authority. The whole issue in the mind of the centurion is the issue of authority. Authority. 
He was a man of some authority, and he understood this concept very well. As a representative of Rome, he spoke with the emperor's authority. If he ordered a soldier under him to go or to come, it was to be obeyed, or the wrath of Rome would come down upon that soldier. If the soldier defied the order, he would not just merely be disobeying the centurion, but the very authority of Rome behind the centurion. He not only has to deal with the centurion, but with the whole power of Rome behind the centurion. D.A. Carson says this, Precisely because Jesus was under God's authority, he was vested with God's authority, so that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. To defy Jesus was to defy God. And Jesus' word must therefore be vested with God's authority that is able to heal sickness. That's the line of reasoning here. This centurion understood the issue of authority, and he understood clearly that Jesus had lordship authority. And note this recognition of lordship authority is clearly depicted as a matter of, are you ready for this? Faith. Faith. And again, we note this whole surrounding context is developing the idea of Christ as Lord and his authority. His lordship authority. To recognize Christ as Lord is to properly recognize his authority. Christ's authority was God's authority. His word was powerful and effective because it was God's word. And the centurion got this. He understood Christ's lordship authority and that it was a matter of faith. This is the reasoning of faith. It recognizes Christ for who he is as Lord. Verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, strong statement, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This is faith. That's what this is. The word marveled, as used in reference to the people's response to Christ's teaching or miracles in various places. But here it refers to Christ's response. It means to be greatly amazed or astonished. Now, there's only two times in the Gospels we find Christ marveling. Uh, When Jesus went back to his hometown and they did not accept him, in Mark 6, 6, it says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. In contrast here, we have Christ marveling at the great faith of this Roman centurion, a non-Jew. So Christ's statement serves as a rebuke of his own people, the Jews, while commending this Gentile of all people, this Gentile centurion. Now let's think theologically about this for just a moment. Some have struggled with this. Marvel expresses a human emotion. In reaction to something unexpected. Takes you by surprise. But if Jesus is God, how could this apply to him? You know, nothing takes God by surprise. Don't we say that all the time? Yes, we do. So, how is it that Jesus marveled? I mean, after all, he is God. What's the explanation here? Ed Glasscock writes... With a desire to protect Jesus' deity, some scholars assume Jesus could not marvel at anything because of being omniscient. However, ignoring the reality of Jesus' full humanity, including the emotive response of amazement, is just as grievous an error as weakening his deity. 
The answer to this is found in what is called the kenosis passage in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. We read there, speaking of Christ, there's a whole context here, but I'm going to zero in just on the the kenosis here. Uh, But made himself, that is literally emptied himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So the Greek word translated here as made is kino, which is kinos, uh, which literally means empty. In assuming the humble role of a servant, Christ set aside the independent use of his divine attributes and the outward glory he knew as God before coming to earth. Now, Christ did not empty himself of his deity. No, 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 no. He remained ever fully God. He did not empty himself of his deity, but only the outward manifestation of it. In his state of humility, Christ never did his own independent thing. He was here as God's servant, doing God's will, the Father's will. So he constantly subjected himself to the will of the Father each step of the way. Again, Glasscock says, non-use of divine attributes does not imply non-possession. Jesus chose not to exercise those attributes so as to be dependent upon the Father and to more realistically relate to the human experience. And boy, there's great mystery there as far as, you know, the combination of the divine and the human. I mean, we could muse on that from now until the rapture. Faith takes God at his word. That is what faith is. It is personally taking God at his word. Uh, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, it's connected to the word. Faith takes God at his word and rests upon it. This is what the centurion did. He believed what Jesus said would happen. All Jesus had to do was to say it. He said to Jesus, only speak the word. You don't have just regular words. Anybody can spout words, but you're Lord. Lord, you just speak the word and my servant shall be healed. Only God has this kind of authority. Faith recognizes Christ's word as authoritative because he is Lord and he can make it happen. Now, when a supposed faith healer jumps up and down and claims to make it happen by naming and claiming it, that is just a man jumping up and down and making some kind of claim. That's all it is. Rather amusing, but that's all it is. But when Jesus says something, that's an entirely different matter. Do you know what the difference is between the supposed faith healer saying it and Jesus saying it? You know what the difference is? Well, the difference is found in that little word, Lord. Lord. When the Lord says it, that's a whole different thing. Jesus is Lord and he alone has lordship authority. When he says the word, it happens precisely because he is Lord. Oh, and and he alone is Lord, by the way. You know, it's good to remind ourselves and everybody else once in a while, there is a God and we are not him. No one else can do this. No one else can do this. All who make such claims are just playing God. And really that is blasphemous. Of course, the faith healer wants to claim he is standing on some promise taken out of context without consideration for the whole counsel of God. And of course, if you don't get healed, it is supposedly because you didn't have enough faith. How convenient is that, by the way? 
They figured out a scheme to deceive the masses in a way that avoids all personal culpability. Here's what John says. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, there's the key, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire to. If your petitions line up with the will of God, he'll answer. Faith says like the leper, Lord, if you're willing, you can. If, if you're willing. It doesn't say, Lord, you're willing, you can, I'm claiming it. No, if you're willing, you can. It doesn't presume, but rather relies on God's will in the matter. Faith says like the centurion, speak a word and my servant will be healed. Again, faith recognizes dependence upon God's will. God's word in the matter. Jesus must will it. Jesus must speak the word. For whatever reason, God is not always willing. He doesn't always speak the word, so to speak. In Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith chapter, we see that many through faith had great triumphant victories. But in the same breath, the writer says others were tortured, had trials of mocking, scourgings, being destitute, afflicted, tormented to death. These two were people of faith. These two are in the hall of faith chapter. Through it all, faith recognizes the sovereign authority of God over everything. Come what may, it doesn't try to dictate or manipulate God. Faith recognizes that God can do anything, but he acts according to his own sovereign purposes and will. You know, that's God. He can do what he wants to do. He can use me any way he wants to use me. You say, well, I don't know. Why does this one get cancer? And this one, it's because this one wasn't living right. Oh, you're completely off base in your theology. Who knows the sovereign purposes of God? Yes, sometimes the problems can be a lack of faith, but not always. The point in context here in Matthew 8 is that faith recognizes Christ's lordship authority. This is the essence of faith. You cannot divorce faith from the proper recognition of Christ's authority. This is what it means to truly know Jesus as Lord. It means to recognize his authority as master, as sovereign God master. And saving faith personalizes it. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God. It is only those who have this kind of faith that will enter the kingdom. You say, how do you know that? Because I read the next verse. That's how I know it. Note in context what Christ went on to say in this context. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Jews thought that they were the favored people of God. And therefore, we're most certainly going to go into the kingdom in contrast to those wretched Gentiles. Those wretched Gentiles. But Jesus said, many Gentiles from all over the world, from the east and the west, will sit down with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. D.A. Carson, these many can only be Gentiles, contrasted as they are, verse 12, with the subjects of the kingdom. Christ here puts his finger on the very thing that is necessary to get into the kingdom, and that is faith. The right kind of faith. Faith just like that which was exhibited by the centurion. 
namely a lordship kind of faith that recognizes him for who he is as Lord. These are the ones going into the kingdom, according to Jesus now. And praise the Lord, he said there would be many Gentiles, including you and me, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. And what kind of faith did the centurion have? He had a lordship faith that recognized Christ's authority as Lord. This is the kind of faith that will get you a seat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. The naming of these three patriarchs clearly ties this to a literal future kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God elsewhere. It refers to the coming kingdom in which Jesus will reign as king on the earth. By the way, this word translated as sit down literally means recline as one would recline at a banquet table. You see, in the scripture, the coming kingdom is often presented as a banquet. I kind of like that. You like eating? We're going to have a banquet in the kingdom. This is a kingdom celebration feast. But only people of true faith in the lordship of Christ will be there. And many of them will be Gentiles. Much to the shock of the average Jew in the time of Christ. MacArthur writes, In the eyes of many Jews, one of the most significant and appealing things about the feast was that it would be totally free of Gentiles. Imagine Christ teaching this. And then he had the audacity to to continue on and say this. Verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you kidding? Jesus, you're a heretic. You've got it backwards. We Jews are going into the feast in the kingdom. Those Gentiles are going to be cast out. Oh, no, 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 no. You see this centurion recognizing my lordship authority? He's going in. He's going to have the seat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. And you guys, whom I, the, God presented the kingdom to you, you are first. The gospel goes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You're the, the privileged ones. In effect, the sons of the king. You're going into the outer darkness. You're not going in. What a shock! You see, the Jewish rabbis taught that they, as the chosen people, would one day eat with Abraham and the Messiah in the kingdom. And they taught this would be the experience of of Jews only. Jesus was so radical. So radical. (laughs) You just, it's, it's hard to be a really faithful Jew and follow Jesus at this point. I mean, the rabbis are saying all this other, what in the world? And what do you think the rabbis are going to do with that? He doesn't teach like we do. No, 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 no. He's eating with these other people over here. And he touches lepers and all this stuff. We got a problem with this guy. The Jews saw themselves as the sons of Abraham. And they were physically. They saw that they were the ones who belonged to the kingdom by right. In their minds, it was a given that they were the natural heirs to the kingdom. Because they were, after all, the chosen people. The covenants were with them. And this favor rested upon them alone. That's how they saw it. And it really should belong to them because they as a people group were indeed given special kingdom promises. For this reason they are called the sons of the kingdom. That was the intent. However, as Paul says, they are not all Israel who are Israel. As Paul says again in Romans 2, that being a physical Jew is not enough. God also demands a circumcision of the heart. In other words, they must truly have a repentant faith. Unbelieving sons of the kingdom, that is Jews, will be cast out into outer darkness. The only way into the kingdom is through faith. 
The same kind of lordship faith demonstrated by this Gentile centurion. That's the whole context here. By the way, this phrase, outer darkness, occurs three times in the Bible, all of them in Matthew. Each time it is preceded by the definite article referring to a definite place. More literally, it would read, shall be cast out into the outer darkness. Referring to a place commonly called hell, where there will be continual weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some have tried to say that outer darkness here refers to the experience of believers who will be excluded from the celebratory aspects of the kingdom. But in my view, that is a tortured view, pun intended. Moody Bible Commentary, the outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth are metaphors for the experience of God's judgment reserved for unbelievers. One clear reason to think this is hell is because of the qualifier weeping and gnashing of teeth, which elsewhere is clearly identified with the furnace of fire which depicts hell. This is not a kingdom experience. Rather, it's a being excluded from the kingdom experience. In Luke 13, 28, Christ made made it clear that those weeping and gnashing their teeth would be thrust from the kingdom entirely. Luke 13, 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. Did you catch it? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see them in the kingdom. They're in the kingdom, but you are not. You're thrust out. The definite articles, both uh, the weeping and the gnashing, emphasize the horror of it. Weeping indicates suffering, gnashing of teeth, despair. Verse 13, let's finish out. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed... That was the issue. He was a believer. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed the same hour. By the way... Note that in this case, the healing had nothing to do with the faith of the paralyzed servant. But rather that of the centurion. Now faith healers never make that application. They always put it all on the sick person. Well here that wasn't the case. Jesus honored the request of the centurion based on his faith. What Christ called great faith. The same hour the servant was healed, indeed Christ's lordship authority over this malady proved to be true. And if the Jews were even consistent with their thinking at all, he had to be the Messiah. Because according to their own thinking, only the Messiah would be able to do this. Well, let's conclude with this. Dustin Bange says, any Jesus who isn't both God and man isn't the real Jesus. Any Jesus who isn't both Savior and Lord isn't the real Jesus. Any Jesus who isn't both crucified and resurrected isn't the real Jesus. Make sure you know the real Jesus. Let me ask you, do you have faith like the centurion has? That's the kind of faith that will get you a seat in the kingdom. Uh, If you don't have that kind of faith that recognizes Christ's lordship authority... You're not going in. That's why the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As our Savior, He died for all of our sins. As Lord over all, He rose again. And for us as believers, He's my Lord and my Savior. Let me ask, is He yours? Is He yours today? 
I trust that you'll put your faith in him, receive him for who he is as Savior and Lord. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.